Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Jesus Christ. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Well, like Xavier said, we are so glad that you are here this morning with us. Absolutely love just being able to spend time together. And if this is your first time, special welcome to you. Glad that you're here. Like he said, go back to our kind of lobby area. We'll have a gift for you. It's just our way of saying we're glad you're here. Hope that you come back. We are in a series called Calm in an Anxious World. So turn to Philippians 4, and I have a question for you. Philippians 4 is going to be, okay, it'll be on the screen. If you want to kind of tune in on the screen, that's fine. But here's the question, okay? Do you know anyone who is as cool as a cucumber when it comes to moments of chaos, right? Do you know anyone in your life that's as cool as a cucumber when it comes to chaos ensuing, right? I remember very fondly the first year that me and Jess were dating, okay? We were dating for about nine months, and I got invited to go camping with her family because that is the big family trip for her family. And this was like momentous, right? You get invited on the family trip, you're kind of in or almost there at least, right? And so I went on this trip. And at that point, I hadn't met much of the extended family, just bits and pieces. And as I got there, uh, it came to my knowledge that some of the extended family, like grandma and some uncles and aunts were going to be a part of this camping trip, okay? So not only her parents and siblings, but we got uncles, aunts, cousins, and grandma that are going to be a part of what is going on. And so we go down to Mohican, right? I get my little tent set up out in kind of the, the area there. We're rocking and rolling. And the days go by. I start to meet uncle and aunt and their family. I start to meet grandma, have a blast, right? And then I meet uncle who came up from Florida, right? And uncle has a pretty big and bold personality, He's a great guy, but he will let you know what he's thinking and have a lot of fun with you. And it came to the Thursday or Friday in that week, and we decided to go tubing, decided to go on this boating trip out into the lake and have a good time doing that, right? We go out, we rent a pontoon, everything's going well, and then a buddy of my in-laws comes by with his speedboat, right? He's like, does anybody want to get in? We'll get some tubing started. And so all the you know, kids, young adults were like, yes. And Uncle James also wants to go, right? And so they're like, oh, this is going to be great, right? Joel, Uncle James, get on the tubes. Let's go, right? And so I got on tube. Now, I've been tubing a lot. I've been on tubes. I've been on lakes. I've been on extreme tubing uh, experiences, right? Tubing's not new to me. It just was new to do this with Uncle James, right? And you get on a tube, right? And my in-law's friend is in the speedboat. You got uh, others in the speedboat looking upon what's going on, and he starts. And whenever you start tubing, it starts kind of semi-intermediate, uh, right? You're kind of going, but you're not flying yet. And he was looking back. The driver of the boat was looking back, and everything was going smooth. Me and Uncle James were just holding on, right? And then he kind of cranks up the speed, right? Gets going a little bit faster. I'm not sure how fast this boat goes, but we were hitting some top-notch speed, right? And there was a lot of things happening. One was, right, you're holding on for dear life. And then two was this. All of a sudden, he takes this turn, 
And you know what happens on a two when you take a turn. You start to go skid, 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 and you're on the side, right? And something that I did not foresee happened took place. Uncle James got close to my tube and grabbed on, right? (laughs) And so it was no longer a friendly tubing experience with Uncle James. He wanted to kill the new guy, right? That's what was taking place. And so all of a sudden, right, all of a sudden, the tube comes back in, right, still holding on. And this guy's probably two or three times the size of me, right? I have nothing in comparison. And all of a sudden, not only the speed, now it's Uncle James, and there's other boats flying around. I started to freak out slightly, right? You mentally start to go through all the things that could go wrong, right? I get thrown off the tube. My tube flips, right? Uncle James punches me and then throws me off, whatever it may happen, right? All of these things go through, and I became really anxious and worried about what was happening, right? But here's the irony. Here's the irony as we're kind of like laughing, you know, nervous laughing, <laughs> right? The boat, the driver of the boat, he's looking back, and he's like, yeah, and everybody in the boat's like, this is awesome, right? And so as he's going, this is awesome, the speed keeps getting higher. Uncle James starts to thrash me around on my tube, right? And eventually it stops. And Jess was like, how'd it go? And I'm like, I was terrified the entire time, the least fun tubing experience I've ever had, right? And here's the reality. Here's the reality, right? As I'm doing that and anxiety is building up in me, right? The people in the boat thought we were having a wonderful time. Everything was going smooth. Chaos wasn't ensuing from their perspective as it was for me. And when we read the passage that we're in, Philippians 4, we get to this turning point where verse 6 starts like this. This is what Paul says. Do not be anxious about anything. And for some of us, we're on the tube. We're on the boats, per se, and chaos is ensuing. We have the speed going up. We have people grabbing onto the tube. There's other boaters around, and we're like, what in the world is happening? You might be like, what is going on? I'm anxious about everything. And it can feel like Paul is looking from the driver's perspective, and he's like, "Uh uh-huh, good. Don't be anxious about anything, guys. Don't be be worried about anything, right? It can feel like that. But here's the reality. Paul is writing from his experience on the tube, per se. Paul is sitting in a Roman prison, and when he writes this, he has every reason to be anxious about everything. He has every reason to worry. He has every reason to fret. He has every reason to ask the questions. And the reality is this, anxiety can kind of feel like that. It's a bunch of what ifs. It's a bunch of the tubing experience. And when you're on the tube of life and it's throwing you everywhere, you have a bunch of Uncle Jameses coming after you, the speed cranks up, other people are flying by you, you can do one of two things while you sit on that tube. It can either, one, paralyze you, right? Anxiety has, has a very, very distinct note of making its home in our life. It can paralyze some of us. We all sit on the couch, and we're like, oh, my gosh, I can't go out. I can't do this. I can't do that. I don't even want to go anywhere because it's made its home in you. For others of us, it might just be a puzzling experience, doesn't necessarily paralyze you, but everywhere you go, you're just like, is it here too? It's here also? I have to navigate it here? Uncle James came with me here, right? All these things. And you can navigate anxiety from that perspective. And so when you read this, for some of us, let's just be honest, you read this and you're like, phooey. That's a bunch of junk, Paul. Talk about don't be anxious about anything. 
Are you, are you serious right now? You don't know what it's like to have a smartphone, have teenagers, go to high school, be in college. You don't know what it's like to have kids, Paul. You don't know what it's like to do this, do that. Be anxious about everything, right? And Paul is maybe the most relatable guy to write that passage. He is sitting in the tube of life with us in a sense, and he's running alongside of us. Now, we're in a series called Calm in an Anxious World. And as we are reading through Philippians 4, we're getting a perspective, a little bit of a perspective from Paul on how to navigate the anxieties of life. Because here's the reality. We, we talked about this the first week. We live in the most anxious country in the world, and anxiety is something not decreasing but increasing, in particular in our next generation. And there's research and there's reasons for all of that. This conversation isn't just relevant because we right now deal with it, but we will continually deal with it and navigate it. And for some of you, it's not just a collective conversation about stats and research. It's a very personal conversation. What Paul is doing is he is speaking into our lives, but he's speaking into his own situation, really, and into the churches that were faced with persecution and suffering and all sorts of things. And what he's speaking into is, Looking at calm replacing chaos, peace replacing worry, and joy replacing the anxiety of life. And this is what we've been saying through the entire series. The presence of God is the antidote to anxiety. The presence of God is the antidote to anxiety. And running into the presence of God through the person of Jesus. That's where we started week one. That you and I cannot have peace with God in and of ourselves. And we can't achieve peace with God in and of our own doing and in and of our own measure. It is only found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. What Jesus did for us was he won us peace with God. We are running from God because we are choosing sin instead of him. Jesus came and said, I'm going to die. I'm going to live this perfect life, die the death you deserve, rise again so that you can have life and ultimately a relationship with the God of the universe. We cannot interact in the presence of God until we recognize that Jesus is the one that can usher us into that and is the only one that ushers us into that through faith in him. Last week, we started the conversation saying, what does it look like to run into God in the midst of this. So Jesus ushers me to, into peace with God. What does it look like to experience the peace of God as I follow Jesus? We talked about what it would look like to pursue joy, right? Celebrating God all the time, celebrating God who is present in the midst of everything. And honestly, the peace of God, it begins to replace my worry with worship. The peace of God, as I run into celebrating and worshiping and praising, all of a sudden fills me with a sense of joy that goes beyond circumstances, people, situations, or whatever may be going on in life. And as I choose to celebrate, he does something inside of my heart. He reminds me of his grace and sovereignty in all things, even when all sorts of things may not be going the way I think they should go. Reminds me of who's in control and how he's graced me by Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection. Now, this week, we're going to run into the third week of this conversation, right? And I'm excited to dive into this. In uh, the next couple weeks, you're going to hear from some different voices, some friends of mine that are going to speak into this conversation. So I'm excited to invite them in over the next couple weeks. But today, we're going to be looking at what does it mean, what does it mean that God is present and invites my prayers, 
doesn't mean that God is present and invites my prayers. We're going to run into what it looks like to ask God for help. Here's the reality, right? As you're being tossed around in the boat of life or the tube of life, right? You can either be paralyzed or puzzled. You can be in that circumstance and not understanding what is going on. And the reality is this, those big what ifs, those big what ifs that, that force us to have anxiety and worry and force us to think about things that we never thought we'd think about, right? They will dictate my understanding of situations. They will dictate my perspective and my attitude. You ever thought about it like that? Right? Anxiety leads me into paralyzing moments, leads me into puzzling moments, but anxiety will also dictate my attitude often. Anxiety can dictate your attitude. And what you believe leads to how you behave. And so the big what-ifs of life will force you to maybe behave in a certain way that you don't normally, but will dictate that in a lot of ways. Here, personally, for me, when I'm anxious, right, I become distant, right? For some of us, when we're anxious, uh, right, we distance ourselves from people, And we may not even know that that's happening. We may not even think about that happening, but we kind of distance ourselves and we might feel even lonely at times, right? For those of us, anxiety strikes up and we become mean and harsh, right? We start to lash out because the big what ifs, and I'm not so sure, and I'm not so sure how to navigate this, right? And I become mean and harsh towards those closest to me because they're right in front of me and I'm navigating all of these things. For others of us, we become selfish. For others of us, we envy we get jealous, maybe we get depressed. My attitude can be a sign of anxiety, right? When I'm off, my wife will often ask me what's going on, right? Have you ever had the, the spousal what's going on conversation? Like, what's going on? Like, nothing. She's like, liar, right? I'm like, I'm like, no, nothing. She's like, tell me. And here's what happens. When I speak it out, right, it changes everything. It changes everything. But my attitude is a signal to her that something's going on. And sometimes it's the big what if, what if, right? She's like, that's not really what's happening. I'm like, okay. But you got to note that. And Paul notes that. I think it's fascinating. Paul notes so many dynamics in this in such a simple passage. This is where he starts right before verse 6. Verse 5 says this, Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near right? Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near, right? What he's saying is this, Jesus is near, so don't be anxious. Jesus is near, so let that guide your attitude. Jesus is near. Don't let anxiety be the thing that drives you, because when I'm driven by my anxiety, I am far from gentle. I am far from kind. I'm far from patience, far from loving and joyful. He says, let your gentleness be evident all as you praise and joy in the Lord and recognize that the Lord is near. Let your gentleness flow from that. Because honestly, that last portion, the Lord is near, can be a hard one for me to grapple with and wrestle with. Right? We read that You might read that in the Psalms somewhere, the Lord is near, and I'm just a very, I don't know, methodical thinker, I'm a very literal thinker, right? And I'm like, how? Right? Have you ever ever been in a seat where you're going through something and you're like, I don't feel it, I'm not experiencing it, I'm not sure how that even plays into my situation right now. The Lord is near, and I'm going through this relational challenge, 
How? The Lord is near. Circumstantially, things are all falling apart. How? The Lord is near. Financially, things are falling apart. You're like, how? I just think that way. And as I process that, just to be honest in my studies, I'm like, how? How's the Lord near in these moments? Because anxiety can strike up, and you're like, what in the world? And we need to be reminded of how he is near. Because the Lord is near. He is here right now. He will go with you as you leave here and go to your homes or your workplaces this week or your schools. He is with you. And as I was wrestling, what does that look right look like, right? I found three things that I leaned into. They're not on the screen, but I'd write it down. Our God is ever-present. Our God is ever-present. He's an omnipresence, right? He's everywhere at all times. Your personal life, in collective circumstances, he is ever-present in your personal situations or in collective crisis, right? Psalm 33 lets us know this. From heaven, the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. From his dwelling place, he watches all who live on earth, right? He is sitting in his throne. He is reigning and he's rolling and he is watching over us right now. You just think about that for a minute, right? Just think about that. He is overseeing all of us in this very moment. He knows exactly what you're walking through. He knows exactly what's going to happen this week. He knows what crisis you're about to walk in, what celebration you're about to walk in. He is in the midst of those moments. He's not just a God of miracles, but he's also the same God in your misery. He is present no matter the circumstances or the people, situations that will come your way. I think about it like this. This may be creepy, and I'm not trying to make it that, but this is the best illustration I could come up with. When my son and daughter were babies, right, we put a monitor in their room so that we could make sure they were sleeping the right way or doing all this stuff, right? And we had a video monitor we could watch them, that we were overseeing the care, we were overseeing their comfort, we were overseeing their sleep. And the God of the universe, just as intentionally as us as fathers and mothers watch over our children, is doing the same for you and I. And he is present in all circumstances, all situations. He's present in the midst of what may be going on. But it doesn't just stop there. Our God is near because he is all-knowing. He is all-knowing. He knows what you're thinking, what you're about to think, what you thought and you decided not to say, right? Sometimes we're like, oh, didn't say it, doesn't exist, right? Oh, it did, right? It did, it did, right? But he knows everything. And the beautiful thing is this. He knows everything, not just about our thoughts or what we did wrong or what we didn't do and instead decided to go this way, but he knows your heart. He knows you and what you love, the gifts that he's given to you. He knows you personally. He celebrates that. Because you are an image bearer of him. We read this in Matthew, right? Matthew 10, Jesus is speaking there. Here are not two sparrows sold for a penny. Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows, right? The hairs on your head are counted. They're numbered. God loves you. Listen, sometimes, eyes up here, sometimes anxiety, right? Maybe not sometimes, maybe all the time. Anxiety makes us feel alone. And like no one cares. No one knows what we're going through. No one is thinking about us. N- no one even could even spend time asking enough questions to get to what I'm dealing with, right? The Lord does. 
God in the heavens does. He knows the amount of hairs on your head and he knows the amount of thoughts in your head. He knows what your heart is aching about and he knows why your gut is unsettled. And he wants you to run into him. It doesn't just end there. He knows your inmost being, Psalm 139 tells us. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb, the psalmist writes. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful and I know that full well. Right? The beauty and the care and the presence that he has for us. He was there at the beginning of time and he was there at the beginning of your time. And he knows exactly what you're navigating right now. He, he, is, not, he is not baffled by it. And he wants you to know that. But our God is also, lastly, all-powerful. Our God is all-powerful. He is sovereign reigning and ruling over all. He's all-powerful over every situation and scenario, right? And I think oftentimes what anxiety does is it usually lies to me like I'm the one in power and I have to interact with certain things and control certain things so that my power maintains or my comfortability maintains or whatever of that maintains, right? And oftentimes I don't reflect on the power of God, who he is and what he is all about, that he is in control even when everything seems chaotic. Job experienced that. If you know the story of Job, dude was a righteous man, had a family, had wealth, all this stuff, right? Satan took that away, and God was talking to him throughout this whole time. And in Job 42, Job responds to him because Job started to kind of complain. His friends weren't being real helpful, right? They're like, what about this God, right? Why would he let you do this? You must have sinned. You must have done this, right? And Job's wrestling with this. And this is how Job kind of finishes. Then Job replied to the Lord after God was like, do you even know who I am and what I've done? And I was here before time. I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be threatened, right? That the, 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 the reality is this. Oftentimes in my anxiety, it dictates my attitude, and it dictates my attitude in multiple ways. No one is for me. No one is with me. I am all alone. No one knows what I'm dealing with. And I'm not even sure how to navigate this scenario. And it dictates my attitude. I might start to fight people. Or I might start to flight, right, and back away. And the reality is this. Our behaviors are dictated by our beliefs. Behaviors are dictated by our beliefs. What you and I believe about whatever, God, about other people, about situations, will dictate how you behave. And what Paul is saying is the Lord is nearby. Do you truly believe that? That he is here, he's all-knowing, and he is strong, right? And I think oftentimes what happens is when chaos ensues, right, I start to lose control, it reveals what I really believe. Because I can say one thing, I can stand up here real easily, y'all, every Sunday and say, God is all-knowing, God is all-powerful, God is everywhere, and completely live a different life. That those beliefs aren't actually ingrained in my heart and in my mind to live that out. And it's really easy when anxiety strikes to lean into how can I fix it, how can I control it, instead of looking at the reality that the Lord is near and the Lord is all-knowing, he is ever-present and he's all-powerful. He is ever-present. He is all-knowing. He is powerful. That's why I tell us all the time, 
Saturate yourself in the gospel every second, minute, and day. Right? As you saturate yourself, literally thinking about sitting in like the hot tub of the gospel every single moment of every single day, it starts to just kind of become a part of your life and change you by the Spirit of God. And as you do that, it tells me that the Lord is near. And it starts to change my heart and my response to those that I'm around. And as I focus on the reality of who Jesus is and who God is, in the midst of that, my gentleness will become evident to all. My gentleness is not always evident in the midst of life. But as I lean into who he is and what he's told me and what he's done for me, it becomes evident to all. And literally that word gentleness, it means to be gentle, patient, kind, and tender, right? What if the gospel, eyes up here, eyes up here. If you're a follower of Christ in particular, eyes up here. What if the gospel, right, was most demonstrated by how gentle we were in anxious moments of life? Think about that. Think about that. Can you imagine, right, in the anxious moments of your family, your friends, your own life, your gentleness was evident to all? And that was the first thing people noticed about you in the midst of anxiety, anxious moments, pressure moments. What a testimony to who Jesus is and what he's done for you that would be. That people would want to gravitate towards you. I think, honestly, I was reading a book, because I'm a nut about reading books, and the gentleman that was writing as a pastor, he would say the mark of the gospel making sense to someone, the mark of a follower of Christ making a difference in this world will be your presence, your presence in the midst of anxious moments of life and allowing your gentleness and the gospel to flow from that. What if the gospel was what was demonstrated by how gentle we are in anxious moments and believing God is near should invite a comfort and courage into moving into the arenas of life that don't always make sense. You and I personally navigate this, right? But you're going to walk your friends through this and walk family members through this. And until we are latched on to the gospel and to who God is, what he's done for us, we will assume that we are in that place and we'll try to navigate it all ourselves. So how, how in the world do I interact with the nearness of God is the next question I asked. Right, I'm like, how is God near, right? Because I'm real tangible. I'm like, well, I, he doesn't live with me, right? I don't see him when I wake up. I don't go to school and I see him, right? But how's the Lord near? Right? He's near in all of these ways. But how do I interact with that? And I was wrestling with this. Because here's the reality about anxiety for me. It makes me go faster, right? It makes me go faster. When I get anxious, you just ask my staff members, my wife, right? When I get anxious, I'm like, we got to do more, we got to go faster. We got to make things happen so that everything is figured out and fixed and in, under control. And I think quite the opposite is what God invites us into to draw near to Him in the midst of those moments. Psalm 46 tells me this. This is the psalmist God is our refuge and strength, right? Another way that He is present in our life. An ever present help in trouble. There we are, psalmist, right? So we're talking about He's an ever present help in your trouble. Oftentimes, I think I'm the only one present in my trouble. He's an ever-present help in my trouble. 
Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, which sounds pretty intense and kind of apocalyptic, right? And even in those moments, our God is near. Though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging, continue. On to the next slide, if you don't mind. Uh, there we go. He says this. God says this in the midst of all that. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Listen, I think stillness leads me into nearness. I think stillness leads you and I into nearness. Anxiety is going to tell me to ruthlessly run after hurry. Anxiety is going to tell me to run into hurry because i got to figure it out, right? And what the presence of God says is be still and know that first I am God and you respond to me and I'm in control and I love you and I care about you and when I'm going fast, all of those things misfire and I don't believe it because I got to control it. He says, be still. So stillness leads in me into nearness. If I'm a follower of Christ, he tells me that he is near in my heart, mind, and body, and I need to have moments where I am still to ultimately believe that and start behaving out of that, right? I, I was fascinated. My children have books, children's books, right? So I read my books, and then at night we read the children's books, right? And they have this book that's called The Rabbit Listens. I don't know if any of you are familiar with The Rabbit Listens, right? It's a fascinating book, and I ultimately think that there's something to be said about it. The book goes like this. There's a little girl. She built this, this tower of blocks, epic tower. It's amazing, right? Castle, all this good stuff. And all these crows come in, and they kind of crash into the tower. <laughs> Everything goes to pieces. Girl crashes. She's like, no, frustrated. I'm angry. I can't believe, right? She's just like broken, right? And anxiety hits in. All the what ifs, what's going on? And they have different characters that are animals, right? Some animals come, hey, let's build it right now, right? Some animals come and say, let's get them back. Some animals come and say, yeah, we're just going to have revenge, right? All that stuff. And she kind of dismisses all those animals till the rabbit comes, the rabbit kind of hops, right? Little cute rabbit, right? Hops. She's crying. She's crying. She's crying. She's crying. And the rabbit just sits by her. The rabbit just sits there, sits there, and comforts, sits there, and eventually listens, sits there, and eventually hears her scream, sits there, and eventually hears her think about all the ways that we could rebuild it, and then sits there and helps her build it. And I was thinking about how ever-present our God is. And sometimes we don't give him credit for how present he is because sometimes we miss that just like the rabbit, he's there and he's listening. And he is present in the midst of the hurt and the pain. And ultimately, we got to see him most fully present in the person and work of Jesus. That in the midst of our sin, in the midst of everything being blown to smithereens, his presence came in the person of Jesus. And he came into our worlds 
to take our place on the cross and rise again. But he didn't just leave us at our own kind of own devices. He stayed with us. The reality is this. We can be still because he first brought himself towards us and made himself near to us. That we can trust in the stillness that he is going to be present in the midst of that. That we can trust in the stillness that his nearness is going to be experienced because I start to believe that what the gospel says about him is true. My first encouragement to you is as you navigate anxiety, you navigate the what-ifs of life, are you leaning into running faster or running into the stillness of moments? Because as you spend time in the stillness, he invites you to talk to him, right? As you are still with him and as he's still with you, he invites you to share. Our God is not just a one-way communicator. He wants to hear your heart even if he knows everything that's going on. And that's where Paul goes. And Paul goes from what does it look like that God is present to God invites my prayers, that God's nearness invites me into conversation and encounter with him. But here's the reality. We go too fast, we often miss it. So my first challenge is this. If you're a follower of Christ, right, you said yes to Jesus. I was just with a bunch of guys on Wednesday and I challenged them to this. Put in your calendar moments that you're going to be still. Because here's the reality. If you don't plan it, you'll forget it. If you don't plan it, you'll forget it. Lunchtime, boom, right? When you first wake up, boom. Because unless you plan to be in a moment of still, no music, nobody else, nothing else distracting you, you will never be able to be still to him. It's really easy to say, I'm going to be still to God, right? And life goes. Be still to him, lean into him, and as you're still with him, right, he invites you to have conversation and encounter. The hardest thing for me, the hardest thing for me is just to stop. So what it look like to stop? Because he invites my prayers. There's something powerful about this passage that I love. Paul goes into verse six, and he says this, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. We'll get to the last, last half next week, okay? He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation... So be anxious about anything, right? He's on the tube. He gets it, right? But in everything, and here's the reality, everything else is going to come at you this week, right? And in every circumstance, you have a chance to pray and petition to God. Petition is just a form of prayer, and it literally means this, asking for something or asking on behalf of someone. In simplest terms, it is crying out for help. It's crying out for help. What I love about our God is he invites us to partner with him. And prayer, I think, is the first and foremost way that we can partner with our God, that he invites us into that, that a petition prayer, a prayer to God is not just for internal peace, but it also is an external hope attached to it, that our God invites us to pray for the things that are going on in people's lives and inside of our communities and communally, ultimately as a way to partner with him in the ministry of those situations. That his heart for us is to partner with him and speak out redeeming, restoring, rescuing prayers for the people that are around us. Because I believe that our God, right, our God we see through scripture answers and responds to the prayer of his people. 
and leans into that in some unique and beautiful ways. Tim Keller, he would say this, one way petitionary prayer can actually do us harm is if we see it as a means to say to God, my will be done. He invites me into this conversation where I get to pray for internal peace and an external hope. And here's the reality. What can be very scary about petition prayer is that it's just a prayer for my will to be done instead of his. Right? You read the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer starts, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And oftentimes I can struggle with this where I just start to pray and I kind of loosely pray petition prayers and it just becomes about my will playing out. That I'm leaning into God for his power to do the thing that I want him to do. Instead of leaning into God for his grace and his mercy and his holiness and his power to do what only he can do and for his glory. When I'm anxious, my prayers become more about me than about God doing something in me. I think God through prayer, is more concerned about doing something with our hearts than he just is about circumstances. I really do. And I think sometimes we treat prayer as this kind of uh, magic genie box that we kind of throw things into, and when he gets to it, by his power, he makes that happen. And really, when Paul says that your prayers and petition about everything be lifted up to God, I'm not so sure that he's saying that so that everything could change. I think he wants us to be be pursuing the God of heaven so that our hearts would be changed in the midst of it and what we're dealing with with anxiety and what communally we might be dealing with with anxiety would allow us to lean into a perspective about who God is and what he is all about. Because prayer should do two things. It should fixate my eyes and focus my heart. In the process of prayer, he wants us to fixate our eyes on him and focus our heart on what he would do and lean into. Tim Keller writes about it like this, that pray with the heart of God in mind, right? That that's the difference between my will be done and his will be done. My will be done is my heart and mind, what I selfishly want or what I want to work out. Or maybe just unknowingly, right? I don't know what the circumstances are going to lean into, but I'm just praying it works out the way I want it to work out instead of the heart of God for his wisdom, his grace, his glory, for transformation of my heart and others around me. And as I lean into prayer, it invites me. Prayer is a formative practice of my heart, and it's a first line of attack. And he wants our hearts to change as he is in the process of changing the world around us. And so there's some things to consider. First, I would say this, asking for change, right, in prayer, considering his wisdom. Asking for change, considering his wisdom. Pursue God, asking for things to change in a circumstance is okay, but doing that in light of his wisdom and asking him to wisely lead you into his heart in the midst of it. Asking for help, considering he knows best. Asking for help, considering he knows best, right? Sometimes we ask for help, right? I ask for help and I want it very specifically. I want it this way with a cherry on top, right? He knows best. 
he knows what, what looking, following after him looks like more and more and what he wants to do with my heart so that I follow him more and follow my will less, right? The third thing I would say is asking for good considering he has given us the best. Asking for good considering he's given us the best. I say this all the time. If God has done nothing else for us but send his son to live a perfect life that we could not live, die the death that we deserved and rose again, that would be enough to still praise him, worship him, and make him famous if that sole act was all that happened. He's given us his best. So when you and I ask for good, rightfully so, you have to remember he's given us his best already. And even if the good doesn't play out the way that I think it should play out, his best has, and we can connect our life to that and invite others to do so in the midst of it. As he invites me to be a part of praying for communion and fellowship, change hearts, daily needs in the midst of suffering for some people. I want to invite the worship team to come up because we're going to land here. Because I think there's something powerful about these things. That the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ lets us know about. Not only the nearness of God, but prayers and petitions towards him. Do you realize that our prayers can be answered because Jesus's wasn't? Ever thought about it that way? That our prayer and prayers an experience of encounter and conversation with God, the fact that life's change based on prayers, the fact that kind of movements in the world change because of prayers can happen because Jesus's in the Garden of Gethsemane wasn't answered. In the garden, Luke writes this. This is Jesus praying right before he goes to the cross. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. Now listen, this, this verse is the classic verse we go to when we talk about anxiety in the Bible, right? And being in anguish, or I would put anxiety there, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. That literally when you become so stressed or anxious, your body can sweat blood at a certain point of anxiety and anguish that you get to. It's a physical response to stress in your life. Jesus knew exactly. I don't think he was just looking at the cross. He was looking at what he had to do even beyond the moment of being hung on the cross and dying, defeating sin and death for good. He's in this moment. He is anxious, worried, maybe, maybe just anticipating all that's going on inside of this moment. And the reality is this, what I love about Jesus there is he portrays to us how our prayers should be sent to the Father. Now my will be done, but yours, right? Jesus was 100% human, 100% God. He had thoughts like you and I, and the reality is this, right? He says in Matthew, Matthew writes it like this, if you can take this cup, Father, please take it. Not my will, but yours. Jesus was like, if there's any other way, Father, take it. Not my will, yours. The reality is this, we get to interact with our Father because Jesus was on a mission. 
we get to experience the nearness of God because Jesus was on a mission. We get to send up our prayers and petitions because Jesus was on a mission. And he took for us what we deserved so that we could have something beyond what we deserved. The gospel tells me by faith, I can believe he is near because the son of God came and took my place on the cross. And by faith, I can approach his throne of grace and offer up prayers and petitions. This is what Jesus says after he talks to his disciples about prayer. Luke continues in Luke 11, if you want to go to the next slide. He would say this, which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Jesus took the snake and the scorpion so that you and I could have life. So that you and I could be ushered into the family of God so that you and I could approach our Father's throne, our Father's home, and offer up these things that provide or produce anxiety inside of us. Listen, if we are not attentive to the opportunity of asking God for help, I think we start to dismiss the gospel's power in our life to its fullest. He's offered a relationship that you and I could not bear on our own. And so for some of us, this morning, it's looking at what Jesus has done as the one to change our anxious mind, anxious thoughts, our anxiety in life. Anxiety, there's roots to that. We said it's a signal, it's not the source. There's something going on. There's someone else in that seat of God in your heart. Jesus is the only one that can fully place hope, peace, life, joy, and salvation in your life new identity, a new mission, new community. And for some of us, right, you might be on the tube of life right now. You're being crashed everywhere. You don't even know what's going on. People are grabbing at the tube. You're like, what in the world, right? And he's offering you life because our Savior, he's been on that tube, right? He took the cross, defeated death, defeated sin, and offered us life. For some of us, it's saying yes to Jesus by faith, believing he is the only one who can save, believing that in him I can trust my life, believing that he gives me a new identity, believing he gives me a new purpose, believing that he gives me a new family to call home. That's where it starts. It doesn't mean the tube is gonna disappear, but it means you have someone else holding on with you and holding you on to it because he's been there. He's near to you. He wants to hear from you. If you've said yes to Jesus, you can live with the peace of God right now. Be in his presence through Jesus, interacting with the peace that only comes from him. And as you enter into prayer with him, I just have a few things that I'm, I wrestle with. So let this be not so much application as it is I struggle with these things. And as a response to my Father in heaven and to the truth of the gospel, I want to grow in these things because prayer is no small thing. It's not. We have a prayer gathering that meets every Sunday morning at nine and I believe the first line of attack at our church comes through them, not through me up here sharing with you God's word, which is amazing and great. 
but through them and through others alike who are praying their hearts out every single day of the week. When you are faced with anxious moments, stressful moments, pressure moments, and you run into prayer, I would challenge you in three ways. First is this, be specific, not general. Be specific, not general. Because when you run in specifically, and we'll talk about consistently, but when you run in specifically, it starts to align you to God's heart and his desire for that situation. When I pray generally, it just becomes something I throw up against the wall. We'll see if it lands. And that's generally what I do. I'm generally general, right? And he wants us to offer specific prayers that ask for specific things that allow us to, over time, align our hearts to his inside of those specific moments. To offer him prayers that are going on in our life. Nothing too small, nothing too big. The second one I would say is be consistent, not flippant. Consistency coming out of specific will challenge me. It will. Your prayers, I think, and I'm testing this out, I'm testing the waters with you all, okay? So I'll come back in two months and we'll see if it actually plays out. Our prayers being consistent will be challenged, will probably change over time. Because as he is consistently sharing with me and I'm consistently sharing with him, he's going to consistently challenge my heart and he might change how I start to pray for a specific scenario because it's more in line with his heart than it is mine. Doesn't mean you can't start somewhere that's over here, right? But he might finish you over here or here. Or he might finish you in the same spot. I don't know. But he wants to do something inside of you in the midst. And then lastly, be patient, not quick. Be patient, not quick. Okay? I am quick. I write the list. Quick, right? Just be patient. Rome wasn't built in a day, right? It's the, it's the old saying, Right? because he is more concerned about heart transformation than circumstantial change happening. He's more concerned about heart transformation than your circumstance conforming to your will. He wants your will to conform to his will because he is our father. And when you latch on to who he is and that he is near and he is near as a father, he is near as a king, he is near as a Lord, all of a sudden you get to usher in these prayers and trust that he is the God over all and he loves you and he cares about you and he's gonna lead you. And yes, he's gonna simultaneously lead through circumstances, but he's gonna lead you and he's gonna show you how to navigate what may come in front of you. And the gospel will play out in the midst of that. Tim Keller goes on, he says this, last thing. To some degree, the answers to many of our petitions would be facilitated by changes in us, but we usually do not take time to consider this as we pray, right? Petitions usually will change something inside of us. So my prayer for us is that we would lean into asking for help, less about getting what I want and trusting in him more, because here's the reality when you actually play that out over time, anxiety is no match to a God who is near and hears our prayers. Anxiety is no match to a God who is near and all-powerful and all-knowing and ever-present and hears our prayers and is in the thick of it with us. And so, Father, we come to you. 
recognizing that you are God and you are good. We don't want this to be flippant, Father. That as we sit in this moment, you are the same God that you were before time existed in this world. You're the same God of creation, same God over all the galaxies and the universe. You're the same God over all humankind. The same God who is reigning and ruling in every circumstance and every situation. You are the same God who knows the number of hairs on our head. You're the same God yesterday, today, and forever. You are just as powerful as you were back then, as you are now. Father, we get to be in your presence. And so, Father, may you encourage our hearts right now. Some of us, we don't, we don't feel like you're near. We don't feel like you're hearing us. And yet, Father, you're, you're right next to us. Father, would you encourage those in the room that are desperate and in need of you. Jesus would be offered. They would align their hearts to what it means to say yes to Jesus. Father, would you encourage some who are just on the tube of life, it's crashing. In grace and mercy, Father, to navigate leaning into you. Father, may you even in this moment, being near and hearing, would you allow us to know that you are with us? It may not be changing a circumstance, but it might be the comfort of a brother or sister. It might be an encouraging word. It might just be the song. Father, we thank you for that. So, Father, we want to be present to you. May you give us a stillness of heart stillness of mind in this moment to be present to who you are and all that you've done. We're grateful for you. We thank you for all that you've done and who you are. Just pray this in your name. Amen.